we are continuing in our series on the key to abiding joy that we find in, in Philippians. And, and um, we're kind of on the second part of this, this key section that we find. But just to remind ourselves, Paul is giving us this, this, this key, or you might even say it's keys. And, and every week I want us to remind ourselves of what these are. And, and one of them is that our focus is not on ourselves. That's like the biggest thing. If, if you want joy, if you want joy, you cannot be focused on yourself. Um, it's not that you neglect yourself. The, the, Paul's not advocating for some kind of asceticism or things like that. But it is that our focus needs to be on God. Our focus is on the gospel. And our focus is on others. And really, that's what he's been just communicating in terms of his own personal example and then what he's telling the Philippians. And a lot of us can get part of that right. Like maybe some of us are like, you know, I got that. I, I'll focus on God. And then all they do is think about focusing on God and learning about God and all these other things. But it never leads to them focusing on others. Others, you know, will get the, the sense of, oh yeah, I'll focus on others. I like that part. You know, I like to help people. I like to serve others. I like to think of others. But they kind of leave the focusing on God part behind. Or maybe someone is all about the gospel and they're, you know, they want to share the gospel and share the gospel and share the gospel. But it's not really about helping people become Christians and then walking with them. It's just telling them and moving on to the next person. We need to focus on others if we want this joy and and the others is really others that that's that's the other part of this it's not focusing on others like oh you know i take care of my family yeah i mean you should take care of your family but who paul's talking about is not others that we just kind of self-select or kind of have we have to kind of take care of but it's others in first of all in the church and if we understand church if we really understand church the way Paul's thinking of church he's thinking about others being a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds in fact who outside the church would have hated each other and he's saying now you guys are together now you're brothers and sisters now you have this common faith in Jesus Christ and you express it in how you care for one another. And you got to think about how hard that was. you got to think like these Jewish people who've become Christians, getting along with these Gentile people who've become Christians, when before they couldn't really stand each other. I mean, and it wasn't just kind of like, we kind of don't like them. It's like, we really don't like them. It's to the point of finding certain things that they did to be repulsive. And he's saying, you're going to serve one another. You're going to love one another. And it's, it's, again, not just those close to us. It extends to those in the church. It's supposed to be those who are, who are different from us. And then it even goes farther than that. Where, where Jesus was telling us that who should we love? 
Well, we should love those who need help. Um, he tells the whole parable of the Good Samaritan. Talk about who is my neighbor? Who should I love? Who should I love people in need? So it extends past the church to just people in need. But then it goes even farther. And again, this is why I think a lot of us are never going to fully embrace joy. Because as we talked about last week, we do not want to fully embrace love. Because it doesn't just go to those who will help you. I mean, those who need help. It goes to those who will hurt you. You will love and you will serve and you will consider others who would even hurt you. You, you, you see why joy is elusive or we sometimes want to think joy is hidden? Because how do we get there? How do we get to that point where we can be so God-directed, God-focused, focused on others, that it's not about me and it's not about you know, what I get out of things? How do, how do we get there? Because that's where joy is. That's where Paul is. And everything in us says, but that's not the way to joy. Everything in us says, why would that be the way to joy? Isn't joy supposed to be where, you know, I feel happy? And again, that's the huge distinction. Happiness is self-directed, self-focused. Joy comes when we're focused on God and focused on others. And we've confused it, and the world confuses it. If the world actually understood what joy is and where joy's from, I would be perfectly okay if in the Disney movie, the advice to the person wasn't, do what makes you happy. Or do what, you know, fulfills your heart. I would be much happier if they said, where is joy? Because if they really understood where joy is, joy comes from faith and it comes from love. There's no way around it. It's a life of giving. And that's kind of what happens in our world. We have this kind of love-hate relationship with things like joy. And what we're going to see today is we have this love-hate relationship with things like humility. We admire humility to an extent. We, we think it's a great virtue to have. But there's something inside of us that still sees humility as weakness. And I think it's because we mistake weakness for humility. As I've said before, you cannot be humble unless you are strong. You cannot be humble unless you are strong. Because if you say, if I'm weak and I say I'm being humble, what choice do I have? I'm weak. I'm not being humble. If, 
if, you know, I've used this example before, but if, if LeBron James, for some strange, weird reason, wants to challenge me to a one-on-one basketball game, and I'm like, you know, you're better than me. That's not humility. That's just common sense. That's just what's obvious. And it's not humility if we're weak. You have to be strong. If you're strong, you can be humble. The other thing that we mistake is we, t- we take passive or quiet for humble. A lot of times we, we see somebody and, and, and they just kind of get along and do whatever, and we take that as humility. Or sometimes people just don't say anything. They don't, they don't really speak their mind. They just are quiet all the time. And we take that as humility. Again, this isn't really the biblical concept of humility. And we're going to see this when we, when we see Jesus today. When we look at the example of Jesus today, we're going to see Jesus is not weak. We're going to see Jesus is not passive. And we're going to see Jesus is not quiet. And yet, he is the paragon of humility. So here's Paul. Again, under house arrest, can't go anywhere, stuck here, at any moment could be called before the emperor and executed, or he could be released. His future in terms of his physical life is uncertain. And he's writing this letter. He's writing this letter to the Philippians. And he's been telling them how they can have joy, and he's telling them now specifically about unity and how unity brings him joy and how he's kind of telling them It'll bring you joy too. And so we have this passage of Scripture that was introduced last week when we went through verses 1 through 4. If you missed that, you can always go online and, 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 and watch the sermon, listen to the sermon. But here we get into this section where he kind of transitions. Instead of generally talking about unity that we should have, he then gives us a very specific example. And this example... You know, most scholars believe it's some kind of hymn. In other words, it's something that was either recited in the church or was sung in the church. It could have been written by Paul, maybe not. Or Paul could just be quoting, could just be quoting this, this very common hymn. And, and it's important because this tells us something about the early church that should, on one hand, make us feel good and on another hand, make us really scared. The church has only been around for a few decades, and yet they've already reached the point where they could say words, repeat them, and not really know what they mean. So it should make you feel good to know, like, whew, that's not a modern problem, but it should also make you scared, like, to think, like, wow, if they could do it then, we can do it now. He's, he's taking these words that would have been very familiar to them, very common to them, and he's connecting it to something that they really need to know because they haven't made that connection. For whatever reason, they haven't made the connection 
between this hymn that they sung or they recited in church and how they should live. Weird, but not uncommon. So let's look at this in chapter 2, verse 5. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the, Paul's focus here is you, know, you, you need unity. Church, you need to be united that's how you will complete my joy. And it's also a way that you will walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. If you understand the gospel, if you understand the power of the gospel, if you understand the value of the gospel, then you will live it out. And you will live it out by being united. That's what's going to happen. And he's saying, if we want unity, we need to have the mind of Christ Jesus. We need to have the mind of Christ Jesus. The Greek word for mind here, it's not there. It's really not the way that it's written. It actually more literally says to think. You need to think like Jesus. It's, it's not just the purpose like some people go like oh having the same mind we have we all have the general same general purpose no it's it's maybe mindset of Jesus might be a way to talk about it he says you got to have this and then he unpacks it for us but before we go to how he unpacks it let me just you know tell you a couple things in the text where it says, though he was in the form of God, a lot of translators think it would have been better translated to say, because he was God. Because he was God. Why is that such an importance? It seems like, oh, it's just a word. It's a hugely important word. Because if he's doing all of these things because he was God, what he is saying is humility is not a human characteristic. Humility is a divine characteristic. There's a lot of people who think like, oh yeah, yeah, the human Jesus was humble. But, you know, the Word, the Logos, the Son of God, you know, he had a big S on his chest. He was like, he was like a rock star. You know, he is powerful. Because that's how God is. And humans, you know, we're, we're humble. Those are people who mistake humility and weakness. No. Because he was God, he was humble. Because he was God, he emptied himself. 
changes everything. The key here is we want the mind of Christ. We want to think like, like Christ. It was very popular a few years ago to have the, the WWJD, what would Jesus do? It was so popular. And, you know, in a sense, there wasn't anything totally wrong with it. It's more what was not right about it. Because it, it kind of treated Jesus like he was some kind of like, like moral example, and he is. And so that's not wrong. But it missed the heart of the gospel. And the heart of the gospel is you cannot be like Jesus until you first come to faith in Jesus Christ and he makes you like him. It should not have been WWJD. I don't know even if this would have worked, but maybe WWJT. You know, what would Jesus think? If he did something, why would he do it? That's what we have to get right. Because, unfortunately, you can look in the Bible and you're, you're going to not find examples of Jesus encountering the same situations you encounter. You know, WWJVF, who would Jesus vote for? Right? Jesus never voted. They didn't vote for the emperor or the king or whoever. It's the mind. So what does that mind look like? Well, we have this unusual phrase, and it's one that people struggle with, where they don't really know what it means. But it says, he did not account, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And people have like struggled with what does that mean and they've taken it very literally and it's largely because they don't really know the context. But in short, his mindset was this. He was not going to use his deity, his divinity, for his own advantage. You see, Jesus doesn't really have to save us. He, he does it for us, for our benefit, but he doesn't have to. It's not about what Jesus got or what he was going to get, but it was about what he gave. And you go, well, how do you get that from grasped? How do you get that from grasped? And I'm not going to go into all the kind of details in, in the phrasing and the etymology and all those things, but the comparison being made is the comparison of Jesus to the typical ruler of the day who grasped power. And what did the typical ruler of the day do when they grasped power? Well, the typical ruler thought about how that power would benefit him or her. That typical ruler wanted to use that power for their own advantage. And Jesus says, no, it's not what I'm going to do. And so we, we, we see this where Jesus thought more about what he was going to give and less about what he would receive. 
And, and this is where if we're going to have the mind of Christ, that has to be in our minds. We have to, we have to think more, more about how what God has given us we can use for others and we can use for the Gospel. And less about how, how it benefits us. How it gives us an advantage. And I would love to tell you how I have this life full of examples of me thinking this way. And I, I don't. I'm sorry. I wish I did. I wish I understood this more. I wish I understood that, that if I got a promotion, that instead of thinking about, wow, I have more money to use on myself and my family, that I, my first thought would have been, God, okay, what do you want me to do with this? How do you want me to use what you've given me? I wish, I wish I could tell you that. And maybe some of you can. Maybe some of you have, you know, you, you're much more mature than I am. And you can, you can do that. But how many things that we believe are blessings from God that God gives us, that our first thought is not the mind of Christ, but our first thought is how do we use it for our own advantage? So he's saying, you want unity? You want to have the mind of Christ? You want the humility that's needed? Part of it comes from understanding that what you have is from God. And second of all, He gave it to you for a purpose. Well, then we see this string from verse 7. Emptied Himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was willing to do and become whatever it took to accomplish the mission. This is Paul. Paul knows this. This resonates with Paul. Paul understood why he was here. He wasn't on this earth just to, you know, go through life. He wasn't on this earth just to raise a family. He wasn't on this earth, you know, just to enjoy the time he has, be as good as he could, and then, you know, go on to heaven. It wasn't why he was here. He understood he was here because God had a bigger purpose. God had kingdom purposes that were far beyond his life. And he realized his life, by God's grace, was allowed to be part of God's kingdom purpose. And so Paul is saying, I'm, I'm all in, God. And he's holding up not himself here, he's holding up Jesus as the prime, prime example. Jesus wasn't here to live a long life. He wasn't here just to experience. He wasn't on a field trip. He was, he was here on mission. And he was going to do whatever it took. And I don't have time to go into all the explanations of what it means when it says he emptied himself. 
Just understand that the overall sense of what this is talking about is that, is that he is leaving what is rightfully his place, his honor. He, he's, he's, he's walking away and he's becoming like us. He's becoming like us. He's willing to become like us and not just become like the best of us in terms of what we think is the best. If he doesn't do what he does, he's just another one of millions of people who lived in the first century that we don't know. He's not going to appear in the history books. He's not a ruler. He's not a king. It's just, he's just a guy. He doesn't enter the world, you know, with all the worldly advantages. No, he comes in with no advantage. So he, he comes, and he's willing to do that, and he's, he's willing to risk everything. And then ultimately, he has to, you know, he, he ends his ministry to his disciples. And I'm going to tell you, he doesn't leave it in a good place. I remember every time I have wanted or needed to leave from one ministry or to another, I've always wanted to leave it in a good place. I always wanted to feel like that the place is, is strong and it's going, to, it's going to be able to continue on. Look at Jesus' disciples. It's not a good place. I mean, what do they do? There's only one that shows up at the cross. And where are they, you know, the, the next day? They're hiding. They still don't understand, even though he's told them repeatedly why he's there. They still don't get it. He, he could have made all kinds of excuses like, you know, I need, a, I need a few more months. I need a few more years with these guys. Or maybe we need to get whole new guys. Get rid of these guys and get a, another group in. Right? His reputation. He's, at certain points, as we've talked about here, he, it's like Jesus mania. You know, it's like, he's like, he is like, in people's minds, like this kind of rock star. And they're like, there, there are thousands and tens of thousands that are flocking to hear him, and, and they'll run from place to place to, to see him. And every time you know there's rumors that Jesus is around, you know it just the whole town kind of goes kind of crazy. And then there's other times when nobody wants to hear him. But his reputation doesn't, you know, he doesn't get he doesn't get kind of sucked in and tempted by his fame. No, he gives it all up. In fact, he dies a criminal. And I sometimes think like, if I could sit down with Jesus and talk with him, one of the questions I might ask him is, you know the time you're on earth? You know those 30-something years? How much of it did you actually enjoy? I wonder. And yet he, he came. And yet he served. 
Yet he loved. I've had this conversation with my children when they were younger, when they would tell me, like, you know, the reason they didn't want to do something or whatever is because they weren't happy. Then I would explain to them that if my being their dad was based on my happiness, there would be moments <laughs> that I would consider changing the relationship, right? I wanted them to understand that, you know, that happiness is not at the root of everything that we are, that we do. That something has to carry us beyond that. But I wonder, I have a feeling Jesus did experience happiness. But more importantly, you know, he had this joy. And it's the same joy Paul's talking about. And it comes from this idea that, that, that when you know what the mission is, that you are willing to, to do whatever. Whatever God says. Whenever. Wherever. However. And with and for whomever. There's, there's no restrictions. There's, there's no boundaries. There's no, God, I will love everybody but. I will serve everybody but. I will forgive everybody but. No. I will do anything for you, God, except. No. It ends right after, I will do anything. And as we just read, Jesus obeyed the Father. He obeyed the Father even unto a shameful, scandalous death. He humbles Himself and then He's obedient. And again, we, we have this wrong because we think obedience is, is, is a word that, that means we're inferior. So just like we don't understand humility, we don't understand obedience. But what Paul makes clear here what John writes about, especially in his gospel, is that Jesus is offering a free obedience to the Father. Repeatedly in the gospel of John, it tells us he lays down his life. Jesus says, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. It is a free obedience. I read this in a commentary. I thought it's kind of interesting that only God can choose to die. For all the rest of us, it is inevitable. For all the rest of creation, it is inevitable. If you're a living organism, you will die. But only God could choose it. But see, He didn't just choose to die. He chose what at that time was not just a painful death, but it was considered the most despicable, lowest death. They, most Romans would never have been crucified. The only time they might have been crucified is if they were, if they were like caught for treason. But even then, Romans were usually given a more merciful death. You either had to be a rebel or you had to be like the lowest part of society. See, he's identifying in his death with the worst of us. 
And what we need to see in this passage is, is this passage is not so much about what Christ's death means for us. That's really not what's being talked about by Paul. Not directly. Instead, he's saying what his death meant to him. And so we find him forever letting us know that, that humility, humility is divine. Obedience is divine. Jesus obeys the Father even unto this shameful, scandalous death. And then we have this huge transition and it's, it's very strong in the Greek the way that the transition comes out um, where it says, therefore God. Therefore God. Up until this time, we have everything that Jesus is doing. We have Him you know, making himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, you know, going, you know, being obedient. And then there's this huge change where now we're talking about God the Father. And he says, therefore God has highly exalted him. It's highly exalted him. What the Father is doing is the Father is affirming what Jesus did by calling him Lord. It says here that He bestows on Him the name that is above every name. And in in the Old Testament, that name that's above every name is is Yahweh. And the way that Yahweh was was written in the the Greek translation of of the Hebrew Bible, it was Lord. Lord. It's more than just an honorific term here. Sometimes Lord would just be used a you know, polite way or say something to someone who is higher on the social status than you. But it's changed here. He's saying the name that is above every name. The name that is above every name. He's Lord. And in verse 11, it tells us And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If if you want to summarize Christianity, and Christianity, you know, really is hard to summarize, but if you had to summarize it, it is those who who have said Jesus is Lord. Because in so doing, we are acknowledging not just that He is Lord of our lives. We are acknowledging that He is Lord of all. And He deserves all that we have. When we do the baptisms, you know, I'm going to ask the, the two people that are going to be baptized, B and Linnea, I'm going to ask them, like, you know, what is the statement that this baptism makes that you've made in your life? And the statement is simple. Jesus is Lord. Bible study night, if you want to join us on Monday or Wednesday, we'll, we'll talk more about this section. But I want to focus here on this relationship between the Father and the Son. The Father is affirming 
what Jesus did by calling him Lord. See, God is, is acting. And, and it, it's, it's interesting because it's, it's one of the reasons, you know, you know when, I think, when I studied the Trinity, it's one of the reasons you, you can see the importance of the Trinity. The Son's humility is real. It's true humility. It's true death. He's truly been dishonored. And it wouldn't be so real if Jesus just did that and then just popped up on his own. Ah, you know, I'm good. I was just, I was just messing with you. I didn't really die. As a matter of fact, I wasn't really a servant. Eh, really wasn't human. But God exalts him. Because God exalts him, we know that, that the, humili- the humiliation is true. That the death is true. The dishonor is true. The Son is exalted. The Son is still humble. But a second thing He does here is God is affirming what Jesus did. He is endorsing his servanthood, and his humility. I want you to understand that. Because again, we we get into this, our our heads, that it's superhero Jesus. We get in our heads that, yeah, he he comes back, and you know, and and now he's really going to go after his enemies the way he wanted to before. You know, before it was humble death, great example for us, but now he's coming back with, you know, laser vision and he's going to just start wiping everybody out. And he's going to reign. That's what we think. But notice, God is endorsing his servanthood, his humility, and he's not taking away that from him and replacing it with power, not the way we think of power. He's saying it's good. It is right. The way you conquered Jesus, the way you did it, Jesus, that's right. That's the hope for the world. That's what needs to happen. God is is shouting it to us and we ignore it all the time. Even in the church, we struggle with humility. We struggle with servanthood. Even those of us who have His Spirit in our lives, it's still so hard. And God is endorsing it forever. You see, we think about the bowing of the knee. And, you know, there's... Two ways you would be bowing your knee before the king. One is you would willingly do it, either because you were afraid or because you were um, really loved the king and out of honor. The other reason would be because you would be forced. This is saying every knee will bow, every tongue confess. Does this mean that Jesus is going to force people 
It doesn't seem like what we read. So why would every knee bow? What does that mean? And I, the way I think about it is every knee will acknowledge, every person will acknowledge that what Jesus did is right. Even if they are going to keep doing what we sometimes do and keep fighting against it and keep wanting to do things based on power, based on self-benefit, based on what I get out of it. Even though we're still going to fight, you're, you're going to at least acknowledge that was right. That, that is the hope for the world. Jesus showed us the way. You see, He is Lord. And He is all-powerful. But He's Lord in a particular way. And the way that Jesus is Lord just rails against everything that we are. We, we have to understand that. If we already were preloaded with, with just being humble and being servant-hearted and, and caring about others, Jesus wouldn't have had to do what He did. It would have been a redundancy. But He's that way because we're not that way. Jesus is Lord in a particular way. And He reveals His Lordship on the cross. But He doesn't just reveal His Lordship. I told you it's a relationship of the Father to the Son. That's what's, that's what's being pictured here. And the Son to the Father. Because what we read at the end, some people just kind of throw away those, those last few words, and I really think that's, that's a dangerous thing to do. But he says that you know, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, through His humble obedience, through His death on the cross, Jesus is not just revealing who He is, He's revealing the Father. He's revealing the Father. And He reveals Him, again, not through a show of might and power. He, not in the traditional way that we would think about it. But He does it in humility and service and death. See, this is why Christianity, the Gospel says, we have to be changed. Our nature has to change. We, we cannot just be the same way and try harder. We cannot just be the same way and say, okay, Jesus, You're my leader. You're my teacher. You're my Lord. I'm going to try my hardest. The, the Bible tells us if that happens, we'll fail. We have to be changed. And the way we have to be changed is we have to have that nature that is God's nature that nature that is love, that nature that is holy, that nature that is humble, we need to have that put in us. And that's what happens when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Our nature has to be changed. And he, again, it's not going to be consistent to say He's going to force us to change. 
No. When we bow, when we call upon the name of the Lord, He will save us. And when He saves us, He will transform us. You see, this is what Paul gets. And if you want to know like the kind of secret to abiding joy, this is it. Paul understands that our nature needs to change. The reason we struggle with joy and we mistake joy for happiness is because our nature hasn't been changed. He says that has to be changed. Because when your nature is changed, you have the mind of Christ. You have the love of Christ. And when you have that, you can serve others. You can be humble. You can be totally devoted to the mission with joy. With joy. And I go back to how does Paul know this? Paul knows this because because he went from being that angry young man who was bent on wiping out these renegade Christians and thinking he was holy and righteous and doing God's will because of it. He went from that guy to somebody totally different. Someone who knew the love and the peace and the grace and the forgiveness that he had not only received, but now that he was able to give. He knew it. And because of that, he could think of no greater thing than to, than to continue to live that way and continue to know that, but also to continue to share it and to help others know it too. If we want joy, then we have to allow that transformation to take place in our lives. And if you're a Christian, it, it, all, it all started when, when you prayed to receive Christ. That moment of salvation. It all started then. If somewhere along the way you've lost your way, I pray that God would remind you today of that, of that real transformation, that real change that He gave to you at, when you came to faith in Jesus Christ. If you're someone who's continued on and, and you know exactly what I'm talking about, my challenge to you is be like Paul. Continue to, to, to help others know what you know and to have the faith and the love and the joy that you have. And if you have never experienced what it means to follow Christ, if you don't know what it means to truly call upon Him as Lord. My prayer is that you would do that even now. And that even though for some of us it may be a huge, quick change like it was for Paul, and for others it's just a day-to-day, gradual, slowly realization of who we are in Christ. Know that Jesus promises to make you new.
When we do that, when we have the mind of Christ, we can have unity. When we have unity, we will reflect God's glory. Let's pray.